welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, so this week, I put the Graph SDK in a crap ton of my code and I deployed it to Azure and it probably blew up. Why? What happened? Of course, I probably... I configured something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're taking blame. Yeah. yeah. So did uh, the the red alerts go off and Wes is chasing you down, asking why you've broken his stuff? Well, no, it runs at 1 a.m., but that's UTC, which is right after dinner for me. So it's all good. Uh, well, that's actually, that's probably better than if it was 1 a.m. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's been a good week. We, um, we're already getting to a rhythm with our team of the TAP program and talking to partners. We had some really good calls this month. So um, getting a lot of feedback and like more engagement from partners now asking for more. So um, if you're listening and you work for a company that's building software that plugs into Microsoft Graph, please reach out. We'd love to get you in the TAP. We, you know, If you're not under NDA, we can get you under NDA. Um, we really want a diverse set of ISVs in here. So we get you know a good spread of opinions on things that we're doing. And we shared some stuff that won't be out till next year last week and so it's just exciting to see all the follow-up from that this week so really justifies the need for a, a you know a fit team focus purely on this and not just pms doing this as like part of their role which is great it was a lively conversations reminiscent of the old dev kitchen days so it was great yeah no it was exciting like, it was really good to see that much conversation going and that particular set of pms are presented to a different group and didn't have as much engagement so um it was nice to show the value in what we're doing in the graph tap so excellent glad to hear it okay so let's catch on other microsoft news that applies to everybody <laughs> so the yeah this is non-nda <laughs> yeah the, the microsoft teams community call happened uh, last week and uh we got a couple three links in here for you that are noteworthy um they talk had a demo and, and talk about the customized meeting experiences with an app so if you've this was announced at ignite and we chatted a little bit about this before but this is a i i'm not sure how much overlap between the ignite session and the community call but again they're they demoed the uh, meeting experiences using an app. So that's great to see. And I also put a quick link in here for a new app template that they've published called Request a Team. So kind of like a provisioning type front end type of thing. So some interesting Microsoft Teams app developer links you can go consume when you have a free moment. Yeah, I put my foot in my mouth. I think it was last week talking about the meeting experiences. The amount of meetings I get on where there's like a lot of people in the room because it's a V team of various different engineering groups across the company. People do round the robin to introduce yourselves. And there's all that awkward silence where, you know, who's going next. And if you go by the people list and someone joins, obviously that throws that all off. And so I was like, well, we need a meeting extension that kind of just does that for you and like orders you randomly of who's doing intros in what order. Or, you know, then people started chiming in on, well, they should just show your profiles and share a screen. And then you have to waste 10 minutes of a 30 minute meeting introducing everyone. And then some smarty, because they knew that we have Fix Hack Learn the week that this episode podcast comes out, we do it, I think it twice a year. They're like, you should do that as a Fix Hack Learn project, Jeremy. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. That's, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see. Well, so, you know, if they're really hardcore developers, they don't want to introduce themselves anyway. So just get on with the meeting. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the meetings I'm in are mostly with PMs that, you know. Oh, normal people. Yeah. yeah okay. no <laughs> <laughs> you said it. Oh, yes. 
So yes, indeed. Then the other link you had in here was about Delta links and tokens. What's that about? Yeah. So this is uh, Delta. Obviously, has been something we've talked about before, and and this is an article on the tech community discussing Delta with syncing files from OneDrive, including permission changes. Right. So at the end of the day, you're getting. OneDrive slash SharePoint files, but obviously that stuff is on the graph. So it's uh, using the graph endpoint with the Delta link slash token that you can uh, you can use for syncing. And they uh, talk about the headers that you can have that says you also want to know uh, information about uh, the permissions that have, have changed. And then there's uh, some examples. Now, these examples are PowerShell, <laughs> which is uh, interesting, but it's using PowerShell to invoke REST methods. So it uh, it's not the SDK, but but it's certainly relevant for those of us who, who like to write code. So it was nice to see um, the SP Dev support account posting a little how to do this uh, uh, using uh, Delta Link, which you should all be using instead of polling like crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. You'll keep everyone in SharePoint happy if you're not polling and denial of service attacking to check things are changing. Yeah, and, and the last Microsoft news bit I have is a, a blog post from Bill Bear. Bill has been around for quite a while. 15 years now. Dan Holm posted a tw- uh, tweet about him being here 15 years. Yes, yes. So uh, he, he's talking about what's new for Microsoft Search, Ignite 2020 edition. And and Bill, is, it's a typical Bill Bear post, meaning that it's more of a feature administration type thing, not necessarily a developer-y post point of view but this is when it comes to microsoft search this is the guy you want to get information from so it's nice to see uh what what's has here it includes screenshots and it's a quite lengthy post that covers all the news and announcements if you will from ignite about microsoft search uh i'm anxiously awaiting for this to roll out everywhere <laughs> before we record i was just said t- relating how we couldn't find a was and i couldn't find a file that we were looking for <laughs> in the um but uh, once we, once we knew the name it was easy to find he could find it right but the, the, i had to remember the name so but uh, so great to see this moving along. So certainly worth a read uh, when you have time to get up on search. Yeah, there's a part of the intelligence team that drives that search is inside of the same org as my CVP, Perry Clark. And um, we have these all hands events where each BAM group like demonstrates things that are coming that improve the user experience. And some of the stuff they're doing there is so cool. It's just like, I don't even know how they would even like write the code that does that. But um, yeah, it's going to make things a lot easier to discover stuff. Um, that's for sure. Yeah, you know what? I don't have a link to it, but I know there was um, a recent blog post I thought about the search connectors uh, from in the graph, right? So that's somewhat relatively new. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've been talking to a lot of partners about that, and um, there's a lot of in- interest to get data from other systems into the Microsoft Search experience, like putting it, putting it into the index and adhering to security models so that, you know, you can search for Salesforce data or ServiceNow data, you know, everything else. We're going to get uh, Raju, who's one of the PMs that drives that on in the next few weeks, actually. I've got to schedule him in the calendar. Yeah, it's really amazing how much interest there is in that connectors world. Yeah, moving on to the community, uh, we have a couple of links from Stefan Bauer. Stefan was on the show a while back. I don't remember exactly when, but um, you and I both commented how he loves doing CSS and web UI stuff. He, he is definitely that dude. <laughs> yes, and, and um, St- Stefan's been on a tear lately blogging a lot about CSS slash SharePoint slash SPFX. And so uh, I've just put a couple of links in the from re- recently, but I, I, it's certainly worth catching up on Stefan's 
blog, he's been doing, he's been looking at SPF, uh, SharePoint UI from a, you know, a designer web developer perspective and some things he likes and some things he doesn't like. And I'm not here to, to pass judgment, but again, it's a lot of output that Stefan has. And he's certainly an expert in that field and it's worth getting his opinion and understanding what he's doing. And, and the, one of the example ones he talks about using designing for uh, design sections in the, so web parts can have, uh, web part pages have sections. So uh, there's some practical stuff as well as the big picture stuff. So great to see Stefan cranking out some more co stuff. Yeah. And then I saw him do some stuff on the Fluent UI um, stuff as well around like the fonts and so forth. Have you, do you do a lot of Fluent UI stuff in the products that you're building out, Paul? So, well, number one, remember, they don't give me a full set of crayons, but uh, generally the, the stuff that I work with is I just use the Office UI fabric library that's shipped as part of SPFX. Right, which is like a layer on top of Fluent UI. Yeah, and it's rather, it, it, it's old now, right? At this pace of things move, right? Again, that being critical, but it, that's just what where it's at. Now that's to say Wes does a lot more, makes things look a lot prettier and goes much further. And I don't know if he uses the, core library from SPFX or if he layers Fluent on top. I do know that Fluent version 8 um, is like a, um, a preview, or uh, I can't remember what you call it, right? The developer preview out. So that'll be out soon. So I would imagine once that goes GA, then SharePoint can grab the latest version and move to it. So that's just a hunch on my part, but interesting to see how that's working. And and I do, so I saw in on Twitter that uh, the Yo! Teams generator that Victor Villain uh, publishes is using the latest fluent UI stuff as well. So, so a lot of a lot of ways for us developers to get our hands on code that's using it. So we would certainly recommend that. Yeah, and I know like the work that Microsoft Graph Toolkit does, Nicola, Elise, and Beth, and Shane, and all that team. They're all they're snapping on top of all that as well. So like by default, it's kind of pulling that in, which is great. And then, not to be confused with fluent. UI, the Fluid Framework, um, and Kirk Berglund is one of the original founders of Fluid. And Fluid's actually been around for about three years internally and obviously open source recently. <laughs> Liam, we had Dan Waleen come in on the show a few episodes ago and we've had Sam Broner, who's one of the developers on it, come on as well. Kirk kind of talks through some of the design decisions they made in working with Fluid and how they do snapshots to basically log the collaboration actions that are happening that makes up that story of being able to replay actions in a co-authoring scenario. And um, it's a really good read. He's actually posting on uh, medium.com, uh, which is where I have my blog and I am keep seeing everyone moving off of that to go to Hugo and these static websites, I'm guessing, because it's just cheaper and you're in control of your content. But yeah, it's a very, it's a five minute read according to medium.com that it's definitely well worth it. And um, Kirk, um, you know, is sharing his thoughts on, you know, what the decisions they made there and, and what that's about. So I'm excited to see the next like evolution of fluid framework in build timeframes to see, you know, once they've open sourced the core stuff, where they're going to go next with this. Yeah, I would point out that Kirk has got a series of blogs on Fluid that uh, is worth reading. Uh, go all the way back in his uh, to, in his blog there to, to learn a lot about how Fluid's working. And I, too, can't wait. I'm uh, certainly excited to see what the Microsoft-provided applications can do in regard to Fluid and how I can put my stuff in there, because it certainly is a, an opportunity for me to get my code in front of a developer. So very excited about Fluid, watching it closely. And so, again, consuming what Kurt has published helps us understand what's happening. And, and, and again, I hate, I hate black boxes. I want to know what's happening. So great to see that. 
Yeah, and I had heard, and I can't disclose the product because I'm not sure whether I can talk about it or not, but there is a product that is out there in market already that was not using Fluid, which has been replatted to Fluid. Apparently, the time it saved and the efficiency in the code base is significantly reduced because of it. Um, I'm assuming at the next big Fluid framework moment, um, they'll share more news on that. But um, I was amazed at some of the information they were sharing internally around that. So um, it's great to see internal teams using this um, outside of the org that build it. So um, yeah, it's, I think it's definitely got legs and we'll see a lot more from it. That's great because I would imagine there's a few bugs or edge cases that came up and they're whacking those suckers out, which is great to see. Well, so I mean, on. this product's got a lot of usage, so I'm assuming if there's yeah, exactly. bugs, they're having to fix them. So I think that that's the, the 1P versus 3P thing, right? The first party apps using it versus third party apps using it. And whenever you've got a first party app using it, obviously internal escalation is a lot easier to do. So yeah, that's great. And so who do we have on this week? Yeah, so the return of, I'll oh, see it now, I have to say the name again. The return of Nick Charlebois, which... Yeah, I, you got to say it properly. Nick Charlie Boys is how his name is written, but Nick <laughs> Nick came on again. He Nick was a developer of the Microsoft 365 DSC, which stands for Desired State Configuration Tool. And it was great for us to catch up on what's happened in the last year since he was on and, and go through and talk about what it is, what it can do. We have a, a couple of links that we'll put in the show notes to see the tool as well as a white paper that they put together. And it's great to, to get... I want to call it the other side of the of the IT fence, the uh, admins, what they do and how they manage things and how developers can use that to bootstrap their environment. So great to have Nick on and hope you find that information helpful. Yeah, it's cool. Well, look, have a good week, mate, and um, see you all next week. This week on the podcast, we're delighted to have the return of Nick Charlebois. Hey, Nick, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. I probably screwed up the name again, so why don't you introduce yourself properly for folks? Actually, that, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I thought that was pretty good, too. You've been practicing for... I actually listened to the uh, the previous episode we recorded, uh, which was 179, I think, and you guys were actually struggling with my last name, but this time you got it right on the spot, so that's, that's perfect. So let's... Paul introduced me. I'm, I'm Nick Charlebois. I'm a customer engineer, which used to be uh, known as a premier field engineer inside of Microsoft. I'm part of a brand new organization we have called the Global Technical Team. I'm the principal lead for the Microsoft 365 DSC tool. And um, so before joining Microsoft, I used to be a PowerShell MVP for a couple of years. And that's about it in a nutshell. And I, yeah, so I, I guess I should say I'm actually from Quebec. So I'm in a city called Ghana, which is right across from Ottawa about two hours from Montreal. Excellent. And so you're about to get buried in snow, no doubt, so far up in the Great White North, no doubt. But uh... Oh, it's been snowing for the past three days. So <laughs> There you go. That's it, really? Yeah. Far out. I will not complain about the cold here in Kirkland then. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, as you said, we talked about the Office 365 DSC back almost a year ago now. So obviously uh, the product name has changed, uh, Microsoft 365. So why don't you give us a, a quick overview, uh, again, just a recap of what is the tool that, that that we're talking about today. 
Sure, yeah, so basically Microsoft 365 DSC is a framework that's built on top of PowerShell Desired State Integration, which has been around for almost six years now. It's a declarative way for you to represent the configuration of your Microsoft 365 environment. So you go in and you define things like what Teams messaging policies you wanna have, what Intune device policies you want, and you actually write your configuration in, as I mentioned, a declarative way. So you go and you say, right, so for my Teams messaging policies, for example, I want my policy to be named ABC. I want setting A to be set true. I want that. And you actually write a definition of how you want it to be configured. And then you send that over to the PowerShell engine and we'll go and apply that configuration. So it will bring your environment in that desired state. When we did the show last time around, as you mentioned, the, the tool was actually branded Office 365 DSC um, for strategic region reasons, we actually rebranded it to Microsoft 365 DSC, but uh, we also introduced support for uh, other workloads such as Azure AD, Intune, Planner, Power Apps, things that we did not support uh, over last year when we actually recorded that show. So for all these reasons, we actually went ahead and rebranded back in May of 2020. Okay, so there sounds a, a lot of similarity to what I can do with an ARM template, for example, inside of Azure for infrastructure stuff. Is that a similar concept for folks who are familiar with that? It is, right? So Azure ARM templates implement the same concept, the idempotency concept, where you can apply the template as often as you want. You're always going to end up with an infrastructure that is in the state you've defined in your, your code, in your ARM template. Uh, DSC is the exact same thing. The advantage of using DSC is that once you've actually brought your environment in that desired state, the DSC engine by default will go and do continuous monitoring of your environment. So we'll go and detect configuration drift. So if it detects, for example, that your configuration says that Teams messaging policy should have setting A set to true, and somebody goes in and changes that to false, it will detect it and it can act on it. So it can either notify you by email, it can just log an event in Event Viewer, or it can go and automatically fix that back to what it was supposed to be, which in this case would be true. Where does this engine run? So the engine, basically every machine that has PowerShell installed will have the DSC engine. It's something called a local configuration manager. So it's a service that runs on any Windows machine that has uh, PowerShell installed, or it actually works on Linux as well. So if you go and you install the OMS on Linux, you can go and have the, uh, the DSC engine running there as well. So I have to pick a machine somewhere and tell it to run and provide it with that template or that uh, declarative file somewhere, and then it'll monitor it for me. Exactly, right? And the one challenge we have is, uh, and I think we briefly touched on this during the last episode, is this DSC was meant for on-premises machines, right? Where you actually write your code, you push it down to that machine, and that machine will execute that configuration on itself. In our case, we're dealing with DSC for software as a service, which is a little different. And what you need is kind of have that middleman scenario where you need to have a machine that will run your code and remotely make calls to Microsoft 365 DSC. So for example, I can run my code, I can run my code on my laptop, I can execute it. And as long as I keep my laptop open, it's gonna do the consistency check. But when my day is done and I close the lid on my laptop, the continuous monitoring piece is done, right? So the challenge we faced was that we had that requirement to have a middleman VM somewhere that would be up and running all the time. Now, the recommended way of running Microsoft 365 DSC is either in a container that, that would have the, uh, the, the DSC engine in it or in Azure DevOps pipeline. Right? So with an Azure DevOps pipeline, you actually spin off a temporary agent that will just go and do the monitoring every, let's say, 
six hours, depending on how often you want to do the uh, configuration drift detection. And you're not required to have this, this VM that's up and running all the time to do the monitoring. And rolling something into DevOps pipelines obviously lets me get all the wonderful GUI stuff that's in there and, and see you know if it failed, right? I could fail the build, so to speak, if it, if it drifted or something, right? Yeah, no, exactly, right? And then it can also alert you by email and say, look, there was a drift detected at 11.05 a.m. today for this property here that was supposed to be set to true as it was then set to false. And then directly from there, you can go and say, all right, run fixed pipeline that will go and automatically revert back that change or fix the configuration drift. So that's one option, yeah. And actually on that note, we uh, if you go to the Microsoft365DSC.com website, we just published yesterday a white paper that basically if you go to the resources section, there's a white paper in there that lets you, that guides you through all the steps on how to configure your first Azure DevOps pipeline with Microsoft 365 DSC, store your credentials in Azure Key Vault and so on. So it's, it's fairly com complete uh, as a white paper. And with my Microsoft hat on, how, how did this come about, Nick? What was the driver for putting this uh, initiative in place? And then secondly, open sourcing it as well. Yeah, well, just like any good project, it started at a bar. <laughs> no, uh, it was just uh, a couple of me and a couple of my, my colleagues, right? We, we were trying to figure out how we could do something similar to what we're doing with the on-premises world, where we have, we actually have a DSC module for SharePoint on-premises that has been around for six years now. And it's quite successful, right? So you can go and define your entire farm configuration and deploy it and automatically start monitoring for configuration drift. And what we have inside the tool is something called the reverse DSC, which allows you to extract full fidelity configuration from your environment. So you can go and reverse engineer one farm, take that configuration and replicate it on another farm. So we were trying to figure out how can we actually bring this to the software as a service world. So we started experimenting with some of the different uh, dependencies that, that are required for, for PowerShell if you want to manage SharePoint, for example. So it started with SharePoint Online. So we, we wrote DSC modules that could actually interact with your SharePoint Online site via the SharePoint Online Management Shell, the PNP modules. And you know what? It, we just realized like there's a huge potential there. But the thing is we can't go and create all those resources because there's just too much to chew on. So we decided to open sources on GitHub and ask the community to help out with the uh, the various resources or be able to go and bridge all the, the gaps that we had in the various workloads. And so far, the code base that we have on GitHub, I want to say is about 60% Microsoft, 40% community base, which is great. That's actually a, that's a good healthy balance for open source as well. So tell me, in terms of how you're querying things like Teams configuration, I use the example of the message policy. And again, this is kind of stretching outside my knowledge of all the different buttons that can be turned on and off in admin consoles. Because uh, in dev environments, everything's on, baby. No one cares. <laughs> how are you getting that information? Because I'm assuming not all that's on the graph. Well, you had to start with Teams messaging, right? This is this is a hard one because right now, when you when you install Microsoft 365 DSC, you install a bunch of dependencies, right? So for managing SharePoint configuration settings, right now we uh, we require SharePoint PNP. For Power Apps, there's a Power Apps module that we need to, to download. But for some of them, we actually leverage the the new Graph SDK. Right. So for Planner, for example, Tia, Intune, Azure AD, we're actually leveraging the graph for that under the cover. The challenge we have with, well, so security and compliance and Teams, the Skype for Business portion of Teams is what's giving us a hard time right now. Because with DSC, 
while you can use an account that's MFA enabled to do the extraction, you can't use an account that's MFA enabled to go and apply and monitor the configuration. And there's a really good reason for this. Imagine the scenario where you're writing your configuration for all of your Microsoft 365 environment, you deploy it, you get prompted when you run the script for your MFA challenge, you do the, the authentication on the phone, it gets deployed. But then there's this continuous monitoring aspect that happens. By default, it's every 15 minutes, believe it or not, right? So every 15 minutes, the tool will actually try to authenticate as yourself, sending you a, like a text on your phone or a notification on the app, which makes no sense whatsoever. And to be honest, DSC doesn't allow you to have an interactive con uh, session. So we had to let the module authenticate using like a service principle, right? So you can actually go and register an Azure AD app and then use certificate-based authentication with that app if you want to authenticate against various workloads. Now, going back to uh, the, the issue that I mentioned about security and compliance and the Teams Skype for Business online portion is that they don't let you use service principle right now. You can't connect with them using certificate-based authentication which is a big problem. So the, the vision for Microsoft 365 DSC is that eventually everything, and I'm, I mean, everything is gonna be leveraging the graph SDK, right? I mean, we wanna have one single point of access to retrieve information and to be able to go and configure settings. We're not there yet because of all the dependencies we have, but for sure on the roadmap, the idea is to only leverage the graph SDK. When you say graph SDK, do you mean the, the PowerShell stuff or is it really writing other code? No, the PowerShell, the, the new PowerShell Graph SDK that got released. That their yeah, old yeah. team is leading. Yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna keep Daryl very happy then with the usage uh, <laughs> on, on that one for sure. And so you basically pull as part of like the run of the thing. You're pulling down the modules from the gallery and then calling those commands as part of the script. Yeah, we are. So basically, right now, to get started, you launch PowerShell, you type in install module Microsoft 365 DSC, it pings the PowerShell gallery, and then it will analyze the manifest for that module. And it, right now, I think we have 12 dependencies, right? So we depend on the Microsoft Graph that authentication, Microsoft Graph that planner, Microsoft Graph that groups the planner, and so on. And automatically, the PowerShell get component will go and download all those dependencies. So when you install the Microsoft 365 DSC module, you also automatically install those 12 dependencies. Right. So you're like likely pulling down like the Exchange admin PowerShell commandlets and things like that. We are. Yeah. yeah. So the good news is we're working with that team. I know that for a fact where we're going to, they're going to be on the graph. Um, Daryl's got those in API review right now. So that's really neat. Um, but yeah, it's good to hear like what other usage you're having there to make sure that, you know, ultimately everything should be on the graph. It shouldn't be through uh, modules that are coming through other engineering teams. And so that's what we're trying to working with across the board is just that there will be one Microsoft graph set of modules for everything that you communicate, whether it's in the, the interactive flow for a user, a background task as an app or even um, with the hat on of uh, you know, an administrator doing work as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because right now, authentication is a real nightmare. Yeah, right? yeah. There's so many different endpoints to authenticate against. Yeah, it's different across all those modules. And yeah. you know, some of them are still using ADOR, some of them using even worse things. Um, and so, yeah, that's the that's the drive. And there's a lot of cleanup happening across that. So actually, you're going to be a good litmus test there. So we should definitely get you in touch with um, Daryl on that too. Yeah, no, we're already involved with Daryl's team. So. 
but this is one of the, the, part of the beauty of this product. I'm guessing is that if I if I need this today, I don't have to go learn PowerShell commands from 17 different workloads and you know six year old technologies and you know five year old technologies and, and so on. It's really just set up what I need and let you guys do all the heavy lifting. So in that sense, I love this. It's 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 great to great to have that available to us. Yeah, great point, Paul. This is really an abstraction layer, right? Because as I mentioned at one point, let's say right now you write your configuration for SharePoint online. So under the cover today, you write your configuration under the cover, we actually call into the PNP. So if at one point we make transition and we start leveraging some of the graph endpoints directly, you don't need to change anything on your end, right? We're just changing the module under the cover. And by the way, we have weekly releases right now on the PowerShell Gallery just because of the amount of new stuff we keep introducing. and you don't have to change anything. It's just you install the latest version of the module, same configuration, but under the cover, we're going to be calling a different endpoint. So from a user perspective, it's completely transparent. You mentioned before how right you can you can define what resources you want and how you want them configured. And let's use SharePoint as an example. What SharePoint type of resources can I configure? Can I go all the way down to like a list item? Or is it really more just policies and the admin center stuff? It's the admin stuff, right? And this is one of the reasons, again, why we're not currently leveraging the graph for this, because some of the admin stuff is not yet on the graph, right? So we'll let you configure things like the tenant settings, be able to block Mac sync when you're doing OneDrive, uh, be able to configure the sharing settings in SharePoint Online. So we also do support things like the SharePoint Teams, uh, the uh, SharePoint site collections, and so on. I think during last episode, I gave that example of one of my customers that went a little overboard and configured all their Teams, Teams channels, SharePoint Online site collections with DSC. And then as soon as somebody went and renamed one of the channels, for example, it kept like throwing consistent uh, or configuration drifts. Um, so there's there's this line between like what I consider data and when considered configuration, but mostly the tool lets you deal with configuration settings. And now, is it easy enough for me to? I mean, I'll go back here, right? So I'm a developer and I, I write some stuff and I've got to put it up in the cloud so that it can talk to my, you know, Microsoft 365 tenant to help my users. And so it's not hard to imagine I have some Azure resources out there. Can I extend or does DSC have talk to Azure or is it really you have to do ARM templates and you have to do this and you have to do something else? Well, there's only so much we can chew on, right? So really right now we're focusing on what we call the modern work aspect, right? So Azure AD Intune is really as far as we go into the Azure space, but definitely this is something that could be extended to like Azure VMs. So it's PowerShell under the cover, right? I mean, if you can do it with PowerShell, you can actually wrap it within a DSC resource, but it's out of scope for us, right? We have people asking us about Dynamics 365 resources inside of the tool. Great idea but definitely out of scope, right? I mean, we're already, I mean, so we do OneDrive, Exchange Online, uh, we do security and compliance, Power Platform, Planner, uh, Azure AD, if I didn't mention it already, right? So there's about 10 different workloads that we support already. So we can't start like getting into the IaaS space, for example, with DSC, right? ARM template is there for a reason for that. Yeah. Now you mentioned Azure AD, Will that let me consent an app or determine if a customer or a user has consented an app? Or how, at what level do you monitor and fix Azure AD stuff? Yeah, so right now the resources we have, we have an Azure AD um, resource for applications. So it would actually tell you if the consent has to be granted for that app, right? Uh, you can actually manage conditional access using that. You, we have the group setting, the group's expiration, group's naming policies. We're, we're still short on the Azure AD 
resources, to be honest, right? This is why we have those weekly releases because we keep adding more resources as we go. But I, I think the core of what people are looking to do right now, especially from a team's deployment perspective, everything you need in Azure AD is already available for you. It is actually really cool. And so you can do like environment comparisons with this too, right? Yeah. So one of the new features we've introduced recently is this idea of being able to assess environments. So you can actually assess your tenant against what we call a blueprint, which think of it as an approved configuration, right? So one example uh, I can give you is we worked with the education folks inside of Microsoft to come up with a Teams baseline configuration for K-12 schools in the States. So this idea is that here's the minimum configuration that we recommend you implement in your environment to get started with Teams. And we define a configuration that defines things like Azure AD groups naming policies, right? With all the blocked words that should not be used when you're creating a new Teams. Uh, we define all the messaging policies, right? Things like, you know what, the, the teachers group should not be able to have private chats with the student groups for K-12 schools, things like that. So we come up with this blueprint. And then what you can do is you can do actually two things. So as a school board, if I don't have any teams presence and I just want to get started because of the COVID-19 crisis, right? It's back to school season. I just want to get activated and allow my, my folks to be able to go and use teams. I can take the blueprint and apply it on my tenant and automatically will apply my best practices. The other scenario is where I've already went ahead and I configured teams but maybe not in the optimal fashion, right? Maybe I, I actually read some articles on the web. I tried my best, configured Teams, but it might not be configured like it should. So I can actually assess my tenant against that blueprint. And what it will do is it will produce an HTML discrepancy report at the end that will say, here's what the blueprint recommends. For example, um, messaging policies, right? Or let, let's say uh, chat policies, right? You actually, you, you want to block for your channels. You want to block Giphy's for K-12 schools. And in your tenant, you're actually enabling them. Well, there's a discrepancy between what we recommend and what your current configuration is. And in the report, we actually print this off. And we say, look, we don't recommend you activate it. Here's a doc, a link to a docs.microsoft.com article on recommendations as to why we're not recommending you activate it for K-12 schools. And you can actually run that assessment like this. Yeah, the other really thing cool. as well you can do is compare two, uh, two tenants, right? So you can do an export from, let's say your production tenant, do another export from one of your trial or dev tenant, and you can do an assessment between the two. And it will generate that same HTML report that will tell you exactly where the discrepancies are between the two. Yeah, that's really neat. I like that. And we all know that K-12 students just communicate by GIFs only. So like <laughs> turning that off will just basically no one communicates anymore. Are the templates granular in a fashion? Because I, I can envision a scenario where maybe we've turned off some feature because I don't know how to handle it, right? Which is typical, right? Organizations that are scared, they turn it off, but yet you have a maybe a separate tenant where you want to turn it on and see how it works. And once I'm comfortable, then I want to apply this one little bit of change to my production tenant. Can I just have this template say, I don't want to do the entire dev or staging here, just this one little piece that lets me be granular at that and, and apply it? Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, so when you actually create, if you, you create your own uh, blueprint, for example, we have an interface when you launch it. We were joking about it last time around where it seems like it's straight out of the 90s, right? So it's a graphical user interface that's built with PowerShell, but that lets you pick and choose what components you actually want to assess or export. Right, so we list every com- granular component like site collections, team channel policies, team channels. Everything is listed there, and you pick and choose. The as far as the blueprints being granular, they're granular in really 
two dimensions. What I mean by this is the first one is they're granular and how you want to apply them. So for every component, you have a choice. You can say, I want my team's policies to be apply and autocorrect. What that means is if you detect a drift, you need to go and fix it ASAP, right? So as soon as you detect a drift, you go and you correct it. But things like the SharePoint uh, teams, right? If somebody goes and change a color in one of the palettes, right? You, you don't care that much. You just want to be notified of it, for example. So you can say this is apply and monitor. So you can decide what components get what treatment as far as responding to a configuration drift. Now, as far as the blueprint themselves, right? So the, the approach we're taking is we're taking a three-layered approach where the first layer of blueprint is what we call the industry-specific layer. So in this case, education, right? K-12. Then you can actually have another layer sitting on top of it that would be legislation, right? Or country. So for, for example, in Canada, we don't have K-12, right? We have something, a different system. So we can actually have another layer that would define different properties. And then there's the organization specific layer. So let's say my industry specific layer says that uh, Giphy should be disabled. Same thing for my legislation, but my organization actually decide to go and activate them. So I can do that. And then what it will do is when it do the assessment, it will be a top-down approach. So whatever you define at the organization blueprint layer will take precedence over whatever is defined at the lower levels. So it's kind of a three-tiered approach that we're trying to take there. I wonder, have you had the thing where, like, if I put my Hyperfish hat on or my Fpoint hat on, and you know, we we sell a product, and then they try and get up and running, and for some reason it just doesn't bloody work for that customer. And Paul, I'm guaranteed you've been there with this. Is being able to run this report and going, why is this different from my normal tenant that I do all these demos on? And you go, oh, look, they've turned X on. Is there a scenario where these kind of reports could be used for developers to to do that? Like, I totally get the whole thing of like making sure dev tenants stay in sync so that when people are building code, they're not doing anything silly. But um, from a uh, environment validation perspective before you go to a client, be able to say, hey, look, run this, just so there's no like alarm bells of, oh man, they've turned on some weird setting that's going to really stop us from being able to do what we're going to do with our solution. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of customers are using it for that exact scenario. The other thing as well is, since you can export full fidelity configuration from one tenant, my recommendation would be, if, especially if you're setting uh, setting up a trial tenant just to do a demo for a customer, is do an export of your prod tenant and then just synchronize it over your trial tenant, right? You can use a tool to synchronize multiple tenants so that the configuration is the same across multiple uh, instances, right? So you could do that as well. Or if you have like a long running trial tenant and you want to figure out what's different between that one and production, then yes, you can do an assessment. You can do an export of both environments and then do the discrepancy report and it will tell you exactly what settings are different. So, yeah, I say the, the key thing that, in that scenario that you're describing is just, just because I can deploy this template to a container and it monitors or, or an Azure pipeline, I could still just fire up my laptop and run it, you know, a, a different template against a specific tenant and then just be done with it, right? I don't have to build an engine all the time, right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. But this is, right, so really the tool does six things, right? So the automation piece is what you just described, Paul, so being able to push that configuration. We have the export feature, which allows you to extract configuration. We have the synchronization, which lets you synchronize multiple tenants together. The assessment, the reporting, which is something we should probably talk after uh, about. And then the last one is the monitoring. So in your situation where you're just applying the configuration, so using the automation uh, feature, it will apply it, but then you lose on all, you're, you're missing out on all the monitoring aspect, right? That thing that makes sure it stays in that desired state. 
Yeah, but if I want to demo something to a customer and I want to do something similar to their environment, I don't need to, maybe I don't need my demo tenant to be monitored. I just need to set it up once and then I'm done with it, right? So I, I still have that flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually what I would recommend is you actually store that, let's say in GitHub somewhere where you have that te that uh, tenant configuration that you, you use quite often, right, for going to customers. And every time you need a new tenant, you just basically kick off like a GitHub action that would go and apply that configuration to whatever tenant. So you just store it in source control somewhere and you just reuse it over and over again. And so this template, is it angle brackets or curly braces or is it actual PowerShell <laughs> scripts? Or what does this template look like? It looks uh, very similar to JSON. Right, so it is declarative in nature, so it is curly bracket T if you want. Yes, it's maybe a whole generation in front of you, Paul. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Well, it. well, yeah, the key thing is it's it's not a collection of PowerShell statements. It's a it's a file that describes what you no, want. No, no, it's it's yeah. as user friendly as it gets. Yeah, giant PowerShell script. I remember like when CI, CD, sorry, continuous integration to continuous deployment was not like official in products and you were just like stringing together PowerShell. Those things just became- well, Auto SP installer, yeah. remember? I mean, that oh, thing that's was, right. you know, With thousands of lines. Uh, what was his, Brian, <laughs> uh, what was his last name? Lancelot. Yeah, I mean, that file was, was terrifying, but that was how you used to do things, you know, 10 years ago. So it's nice to see that they were kind of a little bit further on the structural aspect of that as well. <laughs> Yeah, and funny fact, Brian's actually on the Microsoft 365 DSC team. So he's part of my team, but he's also helping out for the authentication piece, yes. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't seen him in a long time. That's so cool. Small world. How can people contribute? I mean, you were saying about the ratio of Microsoft contributions versus open source. How do you encourage contribution? This is something we're still learning in the graph team. Uh, I think like the pin P community is a great example of one that has just done such a great job of like building a community and building that contribution lever. What kind of things have you seen, seen successful for an open source project? And, you know, our listeners can learn from if they've got their own open source projects or even internal projects that are open sourced in a company, but like just learning on like encouraging people to give back. That's a tough question, right? I, I think the first one is I'm hearing from people all over the place, both inside Microsoft and outside in the community, right? The people that want to help out, but they just don't know where to get started. Every time somebody is ready to go and start contributing, I always see tree blockers, right? And they're, they're technology blocker, unfortunately. First one is people don't know GitHub that much, right? Our code, source code is also on GitHub. So that's the first thing, right? So normally what I have to do is actually have to sit down or somebody in the team has to sit down with the Microsoft employee or somebody from the community, have a screen sharing session and just explain how like the whole branching works in GitHub. That's the first step. The other thing is DSC itself is a learning curve, right? If you've never wrote any DSC code, well, I mean, there's a, a pattern to follow. There's like actually a structure to DSC file. So we also need to make sure that people have um, an understanding of how it works. And then the last one is, this is normally where people get discouraged and then you never heard and you never hear from them again is when we're telling them, you know what, everything we need to accept needs to have unit tests, right? So how do you ask people that are contributing like time to help you out and you gotta tell them, look, you've wrote like those hundred uh, lines of code, 
Great code, by the way, but I can't do anything with it unless you write another 100 lines of code in, in something called Pester that will allow us to go and test our PowerShell scripts and that you have at least 90% code coverage, right? Because I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it for everything that gets submitted by the community. So it's, it, it is challenging. It is challenging, right? I think internally it's easier because people see the impact that the tool can have, right? And it's easier for, for them to actually get dedicated time to work on it from for people from the community, it's, I'd say it's all about just getting the, right, making sure that people that are working on the tool get the proper recognition at the end. It's like they, they're actually working hard. So every time we have a release, I feel it's really important to go and just give them a shout out on Twitter and try to get that that momentum going, right? Because they're contributing this on their own, right? They're, they're not getting anything out of it. And Vesa does a great job of that with the PMP stuff in the way that he celebrates it. And I think that's kind of key to it too. Yeah, I think having clear contrib documents is key and also responding when PRs come in like within a fashionable time is really, really important. Like I'm definitely my almost one enemy with the postman collections things I'm doing. And we have FHL again next week, the Fix Act Learn Week. So I get to delete everything off my calendar and focus on things I want to kind of do that I don't get to do my own time and especially now I'm not doing the developer experience stuff and focused on partners I'm going to go back and revisit that postman collections and I think there's like one PR which I just was too terrified to click approve on without actually spending a bit more time looking at what it's going to do <laughs> it's kind of hard unit test those things isn't it well yeah somewhat <laughs> the the one thing I uh, quickly alluded to previously is um, the reporting feature of Microsoft 365 DSC this is something that we got a lot of requests for. I, I keep joking that I call this feature the putting lipstick on a pig feature because all it does really is it lets you convert your configuration into either an HTML or an Excel report. So for example, if you're exporting configuration from one of your production tenant, you actually end up getting a PS1 file, which represents the extracted configuration. Now, even though it is somehow somewhat human readable, it might not be the best format to sit down with your team and review the configuration, right? So what you can do is you can actually convert that with the Microsoft 365 DSC tool. We have a command let, that lets you convert that directly to an HTML or export it to an Excel uh, spreadsheet that will be uh, tabular formatted, right? So you can actually go and review some of the settings as a team and generate whatever reports you want on it. So that's another feature we have as well that a lot of people are actually using. Um, but for me, just opening the PS1 file is enough for me to be able to go and figure out what's in there. When you think of all the different screens in the admin center, having it all in one, even if it's an Excel document, that, that's still better than having to flip around, right? So I can see the benefit of that. I really like that. So what's next or what, what's, uh, what's your vision? What's your roadmap? What, what kind of things are you hoping to get to uh, in the coming months? The thing is we have, as I mentioned, multiple dependencies, right? The, the next thing is really to get it working with PowerShell 7. Right now, PowerShell 7, the DSC support, uh, the DSC engine that's going to be part of PowerShell 7 is going to be a little different than the one we have here. And my vision, again, is not only to be leveraging the, the grad, PowerShell graph SDK across the board, but to be able to run the monitoring aspect in like an Azure function, for example, right? So completely get rid of that middleman requirement to be able to just have an Azure function spin off and do consistency check, check for configuration drift 
on a regular basis without you having to spin off anything. So I, this is really my focus right now to try to make it work with the with PowerShell 7. The challenge is, I know the PNP folks are working, uh, they have a version now that works with PowerShell Core, which is great. We actually need to go and start leverage this. The uh, Exchange Online Management Shell folks also have a version. Security and compliance, not there yet, right? So it's slowly trying to migrate each workload to uh, get support PowerShell Core so that we can run them in Azure Function or even on a Linux container at one point as well if we want to. And what's the best way for folks to reach out if they have questions or uh, want to get involved? Uh, well, so the challenge is always to figure out how to spell my last name, right? So you can find me on Twitter at Nick Chalabois. That's probably the best way to get a direct hold of me. Uh, otherwise, just go on GitHub, right? I mean, we have a team of dedicated engineers uh, across the globe working on this. So if you have any questions, if you have any piece of feedback, just open an issue. I know issue might not be the, the, the right uh, term here, but just go on GitHub, open an issue, and ask whatever question you have in there. You're going to get hold of one of our engineers that are so that's definitely the best way to get in touch. And what is that GitHub uh, organization slash repo URL? <laughs> so it would be if you go to Microsoft365DSC.com, there's a link at the top that says contribute. The long URL is github.com slash Microsoft slash Microsoft365DSC. Excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time today. It's great to see the advancements and looking forward to the new stuff coming down the pipe. Hey, thanks for having me over, folks. Yeah, congrats on this, Nick. It's, it's great to see you, actually. It's, it's always a shame with COVID running that we don't get to bump into each other at conferences and so forth. So I guess this will have to do for now. Yeah, exactly. All right, everyone have a good week and uh, thanks again. And we'll get you on in a year's time. And you can talk about how the evolution has even grown <laughs> even further of world domination across M365. Sounds good. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 